Episode 15, guys. Welcome back to Two Nobodies. I'm Rupesh Patel. I'm really glad to be back. And with my special guest this week, who I'm going to introduce for introduce to you guys in a second. I did have a couple of comments that people had made back to me about where were some of the episodes, especially if they've been watching on YouTube. We only have right now the guest episodes that are posted. If you want some of the episodes with Kyle and I and some of our ramblings, you could totally listen to those on anywhere where you get your podcasts, so Spotify, Apple Music, and so on. But feel free to listen to those. We've had some fantastic conversations about, you know, the role of our fathers, fatherhood for us, some of our fears, masculinity, leadership, all kinds of things. But as we move forward to our guests, we definitely want to make sure we showcase the folks who are spending their quality time with us and just give you guys a different way of viewing our show. So with that... With that, I want to bring in our current guest who's on screen right now, Josh Carter. How are you doing, Josh? Yeah, I'm good. I'm doing very well. Yeah, thank you. Good, good. Uh, so I brought Josh on because Kyle and I have had conversations about masculinity, and we're trying to explore this topic in a variety of means. And I met Josh indirectly through somebody that we that we both know, and found out that he is a well-known drag performer in Edmonton. And I was like, that's pretty cool and i gotta have him on the show and i gotta learn more about this because i have no idea and so so josh and i quickly got to talking so i appreciate you that you wanted to come on the show and and talk about your drag performing and educate me too because i feel like i'm gonna have like one of these jimmy fallon moments i don't know if you know what i'm talking about where (laughs) jimmy fallon jimmy fallon had rupaul on his on his uh on his show (laughs) and then and he said he's like oh you're like a famous drag queen and he's like drag queen <laughs> and and jimmy fallon's uh jimmy fallon's yeah, didn't uh, know what to do no no and he's like no i'm the queen of drag and so i'm yeah. just totally afraid right now josh that i get to say something that's just no. gonna offend you or or offend uh other people who are drag performers i'm just adjusting my mic here yeah um, let's let's just put a caveat out there right from the top that this is a safe space is an educational opportunity so uh you know we're allowed to make mistakes, right? It's all about how we choose to move forward as we are exposed to new information. So uh, I'll I'll make slight corrections. Uh, it, you know, I'd, I'd love to share information with you as a, somebody outside of the community. And I look forward to uh, being able to impart, you know, a little bit of uh, what, what it's like to be in our drag community in Edmonton. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate yeah. you creating that space for me to, to be vulnerable and explore appreciate you kind of being vulnerable and and expressing yourself here too so yeah. i when when i asked for your for your bio you sent me you sent me your link and i was like really eager to kind of see the website and everything and and see pictures because i hadn't seen uh what your what your drag performing outfits and your attire and everything looks like right. and then your stage name though killed me because i got to find out what what's behind that so you're and 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 it's Teen Jesus Barbie. So what's behind that name? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty it's a pretty random story. It, it, it happened quite suddenly in Vancouver, actually. That's sort of where I started my professional drag career. Uh, I was living there in my early 20s. 
And uh, I used to live in a penthouse in the West End with uh, my best friend, uh, who was a DJ in Vancouver named Eddie Toonflash. And we were just having a party one night. Uh, I had dabbled with drag before. I'd definitely been into gender illusion or gender fluidity. Uh, and But anyway, one night in particular... We had a party in the penthouse and I got into this, I mean, we were lit, right? So I was <laughs> I was in the mood and I got into this zone where I was basically doing little impromptu performances throughout the evening. I would come out in an outfit. I had a closet full of amazing costumes because I worked at a vintage clothing store called okay. Berger's Angels. Okay. Uh, <laughs> And I would come out in an outfit and do a performance and oftentimes it would lead to a strip tease. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would disappear and reemerge in a new outfit. Anyway, this went on for honestly like probably a few hours. And then at one point, my good friend Jason, Eddie Toonflash, uh, just blurted out this name, Teen Jesus Barbie. And uh, it... It landed and made sense on so many subtle and yet profound levels that it just it just clicked. It just stuck, and it was just sound. Like there wasn't was there like a meaning to that? Or am I like somebody who's not understanding? There's some connotation with those words together or something. There, there absolutely is, and you'd have to. It, it takes a slightly altered mindset to fully kind of understand but it's almost like he was channeling to be honest right so the fact that like the jesus name in there it does imply that there is kind of a spiritual component to okay. myself personally and how i yeah. view the world and how uh and how i connect with life uh it's not a super literal uh you know um uh example but um like drag drag often is about taking the piss out of things and being quite irreverent at times. So it's a bit of both. There's some duality there. It's both like a nod to the spirituality okay. that I, you know, live and embody, but also a bit poking fun at the, <laughs> you know, the uh, uh, rigid sort of construct of religion sometimes. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, the teen part, I don't know where it comes from. And obviously at this point in my early 40s, I'm like far from a teen. So it's sort of <laughs> ironic that I continue to call myself that. Some of my drag sisters tease me all the time. And one day they we say I'm eventually going to graduate to like grandmother to Jesus Barbie. <laughs> and uh, and then Barbie, of course, is just this, you know, iconic yeah, for sure. you know, figure. And in my mind really speaks to... Uh, the costuming, sort of the presentation, mm. the the female again I I illusion or impersonation of uh, of gender expression. So I yeah, can't imagine there's another Teen Jesus Barbie out there. No, no, okay, no, <laughs> there's definitely not. And some of yeah. the yeah, some of the bigger names, some of the bigger queens I've worked with or met in the past, when they've heard my name, they just like it, it's it's very nonsensical, and they get a good laugh out of it. It. it you know, yeah, again, you have to be so on a certain level, but and when you are, it's just kind of the absurdism, it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you remember yeah. your first time when you saw a drag performance? Oh, goodness. <sighs> uh, that's a really good question. I... And did that matter, though? Like, was that sort of like, if you saw that, was that sort of your inspiration? Or were you kind of like, you knew this is something you're interested in, and it didn't really matter whether you saw one or not, or... 
No, no, no. I definitely had an impactful moment, but I'll be honest, it wasn't a performance per se. Actually, okay. the, the first really like aha moment that I saw a drag performer, drag queen, it was actually somebody that I went to high school with. So I was about 15 years old and uh, we, we were actually going to Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know how they used to do that yeah. at Garneau Theatre? Okay. Yeah, so it was my first time ever going to Rocky Horror Picture Show and I was 15. And one of it was actually another person at my school who was uh, there in line in full drag, uh, full geesh, as we say. And uh, they are beautiful. I know them to this day. She's a transgender woman. She's beautiful, stunning, amazing human being. And But I, I saw this human in full drag in front of me. And I mean, I was just awestruck, absolutely blown away by her beauty her you know her height her just projection of of power energy sexuality it was just right. incredible so i mean that made a big impact and then you know to be honest i really i started going to nightclubs and stuff at about 15 and so okay. i got exposed to a lot of queer culture a lot of uh again different gender expressions and stuff and so there were a lot of different influences and factors and edmonton has a very unique culture and community in terms mm. of the uh, in terms of like queer and alternative subculture because there's so many small pockets of say punk or alternative or goth or or you know uh, lgbtq uh drag all of it that they sort of all blend together at, mm. at certain points, especially they did back in the 90s, maybe less so today. But anyway, so, so many different influences, you know, leading up to me actually beginning to experiment at first. And then, as I said, moving to Vancouver and, and finding an opportunity to actually uh, do this on a stage in a more professional capacity, I guess. And so how many years has it been since you've been performing? 20 20 okay yeah. and is there and do you know people who have been doing it like you know throughout into like seniorhood and so on like is that a oh, common thing yeah well i don't know if common but right. uh but absolutely yeah yeah there yeah. are queens that i know some queens that have been performing for i'm trying to think oh my god i don't want to name names but yeah <laughs> uh yeah definitely longer <laughs> yeah, yeah oh yeah for sure and and yeah, yeah, there's there can definitely be some longevity. It's uh probably not an easy path <laughs> okay. to stay kind of relevant and uh you know, on top of it, but I mean, some of the bigger known drag queens sort of in the world in like in America, uh they've been doing this. Like RuPaul, you mentioned, you brought up mm. RuPaul. I mean, she's been, you know, drag queen supermodel of the world since mm. the 90s. So, uh, you know, we're looking at 30 a thir good 30 year long plus career. Mm. Yeah. Do you, th so you're talking about, um, actually I wanted to go back on something that you said, cause you said some of these cultures and subcultures are all kind of blended in. And so I always had this, I, I always didn't quite understand like what it meant to be queer. And, and then, so like, and because some of these things do seem like they are blended, but I may be misinterpreting that. Can you, is there, Am I mistaken by that, or are there pretty clear definitions for for what it means to be queer? And mm, good question. I mean, it's very personal. Okay. Uh, you know, queer isn't a word that that uh, sits well with everyone in our community, but okay. it is a part of our acronym. It's a part of our rainbow. So that's the Q and LGBTQ. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I personally identify with queer. I always have. 
because for me, it's kind of a liminal uh, word. So it's sort of in between. It, and in my eyes, it really blends a lot of the rest of the rainbow. It give it, mm. There's sort of space for a lot of diversity within just that word to mm -hmm. me. Uh, but no, absolutely. That the reason there are so many letters in our acronym is because there are very there are other people that identify very specifically with with one or another or multiple. Uh, it's really not limited or really you know it's it's not um, uh, structured in such a way that you know that anyone should ever be limited by any notion of sure. identity or, sure. or definition, right? That's kind of one of the beauties of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, now what, what happens uh, with the words like drag and drag performer and drag queen? Like, is there, I remember when uh, prior to us talking, I think I might've used, I, can't, I think I might've used just drag and you're like, I think it's drag, you said drag performer. Any mm -hmm. sort of like distinctions or things that need to be cleared up there or... Sure. Uh, well, yeah. So you had used the, the the word in plural. You said drags. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Right. So, uh, yeah. Just to, drag is. I would almost say. Well, it, it's not a noun. It's an adjective and or a verb. So to okay. do drag, to drag, okay. right? Uh, that could be the verb, but it's also an adjective. Anyway, so there are drag queens, as you mentioned. There are drag performers. Yeah. Uh, other words that have been used are again drag illusionist. Um, uh, uh, there are many different styles of drag. Everything from am I allowed to swear? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Yeah, oh, yeah. okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I mean, one and actually this is again I'll just reference RuPaul uh, because she actually when she and I'll just use the female. Um, uh, version of her. When she started, she would refer to her drag as gender fuck. And okay. that's uh, that's kind of something that I was, well, that I really like. Anyway, uh, that's just sort of, again, a nod to the irreverence around, you know, defining ourselves based on a specific gender or pronoun or, um, and, and, you know, again, under the sort of the umbrella of queerness, um, you know, just an acknowledgement that, yeah, in a lot of our minds, uh, gender is a fluid uh, and, you know, it's it's like a performative expression of, of gender. And so mm -hmm. it can go one way or the other. So, uh, I mean, gender fuck can be a part of it. There's other kinds of drags. I mean, we have like drag comedians. We have... Uh, like fishy drag queens, those are queens that are <laughs> that we consider very passable, uh, very okay. beautiful. Uh, there are drag kings, I think I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we have, I mean, really everything under the sun. Raspberry drag, or um, that's when men. That's an old expression, I think. I don't know if it's used that much these days, but that's when men perform with full facial hair, but still in drag. Uh, Gosh, what else? There's yeah, there's really so many incarnations. And does it? Do, would you say does it matter whether um, people get caught up in? Because you said it's it's like part of the rainbow, right? And so, does yeah. it matter whether people get caught up on the terminology? Like, certainly, I'm sure there are some some terms that 
are probably offensive and and don't doesn't don't sit well with people but like i almost think that sometimes the naming becomes a barrier to actually holding real conversations and to actually engaging with people um, because sometimes there can be an uncomfortness about people maybe not saying the right things or um, on the extreme where people will say the right things and it does become offensive. Like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah, it's really, that's really complicated. It's really dynamic and it's such a personal thing. I mean, I think it's really important to honor and respect everybody's kind of sure. boundaries and their need to be identified um, as they want to be uh, as they w- choose to be viewed, as they choose to be labeled or self-identify. So it's important to listen and to, you know, ask people what their preferences are. Uh, and But you know what? I mean, I think once we put that good foot forward of saying, like, what is your preference and how do I respect you? How do I give mm. you the space that you need um, to to reassure you that I value and respect your boundaries, then I think that opens a door to being able to be a little looser and a little more comfortable in making mistakes and using the wrong pronouns and using, you know, and not necessarily wrong, but being flexible with those pronouns because, you know, but we sort of have to walk through this path of mutual uh, sort of respect and kind of exploration of of boundaries because historically those have always been sort of trampled on right people's mm-hmm. rights and boundaries and safety uh, have been have been um, violated and persecuted and so that's why I think like in so many other social issues it's important to start with you know a, a healthy respectful. Uh, conversation around you know what's acceptable and what's what's appropriate for each individual yeah 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 once, no, once it... people know you're you know that you are trying like that's the biggest thing that you tr- that you care that you're trying sure. that you want to be kind then it's like we can let a lot of things slide i think it's not a you know it, it's that's more of a mainstream message i think for the kind of you know in particular kind of right-wing conservative world that puts a lot of really definitive labels and judgments on the community and, you know, uses language in a hurtful way. So once we get past that and realize that like we're talking to an ally, it's usually Mm -hmm. a lot more fun and a lot more fluid. (laughs) And I mean, those are, those are really good points. And that's sort of the trouble sometimes I have with, with, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter whether it's, um, in reference to the LGBTQ community, or it could be um, someone from a different country when there's like almost like purposeful, um, a purposeful attempt by somebody to to um, name somebody or name a culture in a way that makes them feel comfortable, but is not sort of really making an effort to hear how somebody wants to be uh, their preferences, right? Like yeah. I always get thrown off by like, you know, when someone says the country Iran, Right. right. Like when it's when it's Iran. Right. Yeah. Like it's that's how people would say it. Right. And yeah, um, it's the same thing. And, and but but when people are when people put their best foot forward and they're really trying and and they make slip ups or whatever, I personally like for any sort of if there's any preferences that I have, there's a whole, like you said, amount of more a, a lot more amount of forgiveness and flexibility yeah. um, because you just you know, you want to you want to move forward with that person. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And yeah, none of us are, you know, none of us know everything. We don't, you know, no. we have to, we have to be given opportunities to learn about each other, um, in healthy ways. Right. So, uh, yeah, I think that it's really important to, uh, it's really important to be, you know, open and, and curious and, uh, and also responsive, right? Like, do you, like, that's another, you know, a big issue, I think, across the board, no matter what, again, social kind of issue we're talking about is how does, how does one respond to being corrected or mm. being mm. asked to change a behavior or their languaging, right? Is it going to be met with resistance or defensiveness? Or is it, you know, or can we just be humble human beings and say like, mm. oh, I, I had no idea. I did not know. And so now I can do better moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the, do you remember sort of the first time you started dressing drag and then like, what's that process look for you now? Like what, tell, walk me oh. through like, you know, before a show, like how much time does that take? <laughs> and like, what's the, what's the mental preparation? Is there like a pregame meal kind of thing? Like, what does all that look like? <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's a good one. That's, that's changed a lot <laughs> over the years. Um, I mean, when I was, in my teens and early twenties, yeah. I could basically slap on like a little bit of eyeshadow and some <laughs> lip gloss. Right. I had naturally the really long hair at the time. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, I could put on a dress and basically run out the door and be in drag. Uh, okay. That's not at all what we, or the kids I think would consider drag today. Um, makeup and hair and costumery. Um, has evolved so much over the years, but, you know, so even my, my approach, my style, my preparation for drag has changed immensely over the years. Uh, you know, my, I, my features have changed obviously as I've matured. Mm -hmm. So it takes more for me to feminize my features if I choose to though, like that's also a personal choice that doesn't have mm -hmm. to, you know, that I don't have to always conform to. And I don't always conform to really depends what kind of mood I'm in, what kind of event I'm doing, what kind of message I want to convey. So, um, uh, you know, currently, and, you know, unfortunately it's, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so it's been like a year since I've done any drag. So I'm not even, what are you doing right now? Like, is there a, like, obviously you can't, there's no shows, but are there virtual events or like, there are, yeah, there? yeah, okay. there are virtual events. And I think, yeah. So the last one I did was for pride last year in June. Okay. And, uh, and actually just had a meeting about, uh, pride festival or a pride event that's going to be happening this year that I'll be involved in through fruit loop, uh, which is a local nonprofit that I started with some friends about eight years ago. And, uh, anyway, so, uh, but anyway, when my friends from fruit loop were asking, Oh, will you, do you want to do work with us for this event? And I thought like, do I even do drag anymore? I have no, it's been so long. I don't even know. I don't even know like how I feel about it right now. I mean, so many things as, as I'm sure, you know, are up in the air in this current, yeah. uh, in this current world. But anyway, back to your question. It, yeah, it really depends. There's no, um, uh, what's the ritual, you know, there's definitely a ritual, uh, and it can take anywhere from, you know, I, I can bang out a decent look in an hour or okay. I could take three hours getting ready. It really kind of depends, depends on what you're going for. Depends what I'm going for. It depends yeah. how much time I've got. Like, 
you know, I've done events where I need to be at a venue at nine in the morning. So I'll be up at mm. six, you know, starting to get ready, everything, you know, starting the process from, you know, showering, shaving, you know, yeah, de <laughs> getting rid of the hair, uh, right. And then just like the slow build of makeup, organizing outfits, you know, you, there's a whole body uh, <laughs> involved, like that yeah. you got to put together, you have to plan your whole, you know, you usually have maybe multiple costume changes. So you need to have all your costume pieces, accessories, mm. different wigs. I mean, a lot can go into it. So that easily a three hour process sometimes. Have you accumulated things over time or is there, do you like borrow things from other people or what? Yeah, a bit of both, a bit of both yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I've definitely, yeah, accumulate. I mean, so many things have have come and gone through these hands. Uh, like I said, I used to, <laughs> I used to work in vintage for years. And so I've had at times like really massive costume collections and stuff, but I've been a little more transient in the last year. And so okay. I've really uh, whittled down my collection, but absolutely. Yeah. You have to, yeah, you, you gotta hang on to a few gems. Of course, they're just like your, your easy go-to yeah. you know, easy show stopping, uh, outfits. <laughs> and do you, do you still get nervous or anxious before a show? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I always tell people, I mean, when I work with younger, newer performers, uh, you know, and, and they're nervous or talk about nerves. I mean, I'm, I've always embraced nervousness as, as a sign that like, it's really that, you know, the event or the message again that I'm trying to convey is the meaningful one to me and that it's meaningful for me to connect with the audience and for me to express what I have to express. So the nervousness just means that I care and you know, that it's meaningful. So yeah, it's still, I think happens. if you weren't it's anxious good. at all, like that probably would be an issue, right? Yeah, possibly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little bit of low lying anxiety is, you know, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what are your keys, would you say, to uh, like when you're like, oh, that was just an awesome performance. I know I hit that one. Like, what are those things, those notes that you feel like you had to kind of hit? Uh, it's always the audience reaction, first okay. and foremost. You know, I think it, you, you can, I mean, if you can't hear it, you can feel the you know, the energy, the enthusiasm, the like reception of what you're doing, you know, typically again, in a pre COVID world, that would be, that would be cheering applause. Um, we also have something called tipping culture in drag. So, mm. uh, our audiences are, uh, well now it wasn't actually that, that common, uh, a number of years ago. It's a very common thing in the United States, but in Canada, beyond the court system, which I'm getting into some whole oh, other categories. That's okay. <laughs> um, anyway, tipping culture is something that, that that's kind of a little bit newer in sort of like I what I'd say sort of like more mainstream local drag. Uh, and that's literally just that the audience will come up and give you cash money while you're tip mm. while you're performing. And so obviously, you know, the more people that are, you know, impressed by your performance are going to come up Get and more give, tips. You, yeah. give you a few bucks. And, yeah. uh, and that's a you know direct reflection, obviously, of how you're doing. Um, but there are also those, yeah, there are also those numbers that you just like, it's just, a, like I said, a message or like a, uh, an inspiration, uh, a commentary on, you know, a social or political cause that you feel powerful about that, you know, you're doing that primarily for yourself. It's like, and that 
that feels amazing. So it kind of doesn't matter if the audience is completely dead silent. Like maybe that's the point. There are people that do numbers. Sometimes I, you know, yeah, I've done performances that are a lot more somber that aren't necessarily about upliftment or high energy dance mm. kind of stuff. There's things that are, are really kind of dramatic performances that are just satisfying as from a personal you know point of view um, because it was something weighing heavy uh, you know, in my heart. So like, do you remember yeah. a specific performance? Like maybe there was a message behind something or there was a certain moment that you're really trying to capture. Um, yeah, sometime. for sure. Yeah. I mean the most obvious or recent one was my performance for the pride fruit loop last June. Um, you know, we were in, this was still the beginning of the pandemic of the lockdown. Essentially we were, you know, uh, you know, as a society, all suffering through the early stages of that it was also shortly after the you know really large demonstrations of black lives matter mm-hmm. um there were several big social movements that were just right on the surface i mean they've just been accumulating over mm-hmm. the years and um so i did a a, a performance of um Oh my goodness, I'm going to blank on the name. Uh, it was Fornon Blondes. Am I crazy? What's going on? Uh, anyway, it's a beautiful song. It's very uh, it's very emotional and it's very sort of politically um, inspired, what, what at least it was for me. So yeah. I, I was doing a commentary that was, yeah, about basically all of these movements rolled into one. Uh, and there was no audience there cause we were filming it right. in a, in a, uh, a venue where we couldn't have an audience other than my fellow performers that, that were there. And that was really awesome. But yeah, that was really meaningful. I mean, I, I walked off stage and actually like fell into one of the cameraman's arms, like, and just had like a really good cry. Cause mm. it was, yeah, it was a very emotional message for me. Yeah. At least there was one person there to catch your fall. <laughs> it wasn't entirely FDA. No, exactly. No, there, there, there was like I said, the other performers were there, and we were all really supportive of each other, and and we made for a great audience. I mean, performers are the best audience because we know what it's like for, you know, that person on stage, and we're like the first people to be screaming and, and cheering them on, right? Because we know we want to give that energy back to them. You talked about sisterhood. So this kind of comes to another question I had. You talked about um, sort of sisterhood. Do you find that is there a competition within the drag performing community or is, or are you guys pretty tight knit? You know, what? tell me what that looks like. It's a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's not surprising to me. Like, I think that with anything, like there's going to yeah. be that, but. Totally. Yeah. yeah um, there is a lot of sisterhood and that's what I am all about. Like that's. Mm. Where I put my energy is the uh, reciprocal, you know, loving, supportive relationships that I have found and made through the drag community. Um, but there is absolutely also a, a very competitive edge. And that's, 
you know, I'd, I'd like to say from my perspective anyway, it's a more that's a more of a, a modern development as well that has kind of okay. co- it's coincided with things like RuPaul's Drag Race and drag becoming more mm. mainstream and being on television. And, um, you know, that show specifically is a competition. And so it's really like projected a message into our into our world about uh, drag being about, you know, one person being better than another which when you break it down for most of us like you know i'll just use the word local for most of us kind of local smaller time performers it's never been about that our gender our expression our art essentially is really a a personal um expression and it has nothing to do with anybody else and we're not trying to be better than anybody else you know for the most part that's not to say that there aren't people out there that want to be the best that want to be better that want to make mm-hmm. more dollars that want to be professional uh and kudos to them that's fine mm-hmm. but like that's not a game that i'm i've ever been interested in playing so what do you think what do you take what's your take on rupaul's drag race then do you feel like it sounds like there are some sort of maybe negative things but i'm assuming there's also it's probably generated a ton, a ton of awareness about the drag community and, yeah. and performing and what it takes and to get at that level, perhaps? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's a huge topic of conversation, and it's very, um, very dynamic. So uh, there have been moments where I've I've absolutely hated it, <laughs> the show itself, and, like, the, yeah. again, the message uh, that it's conveying to the mainstream and to our younger uh, queens or kings uh, who are who are coming up and the impression that they're being given about what is required of them or expected of them or quote unquote normal. Um, because again, this message of like comp- competitiveness, what it takes to, to do drag, uh, it's really been skewed by the show. And when mm. you're, when you're watching, you know, uh, internationally broadcasted production of like some of the best drag performers in the world. Uh, and they're at a level where they have, resources and you know amazing costumes and makeup and wigs uh let's face it when i was 15 16 17 and i was experimenting with drag just as many youth are today you don't have access to that stuff and (laughs) if that was truly a barrier then you would probably never get into it and it kind of saddens me that that might be an impression that that young people get that there's an expectation of a certain status that needs to be achieved before you can actually do it properly and that's it's not true it's it's not about that at all it's a really it's a it's something that you know you it starts inside you it's a craving within your heart and soul before anything else i think for the most part i think you know in my opinion drag performers are very unique individuals there it's very special uh kind of calling that comes from deep within that uh that isn't necessarily yeah kind of like that isn't necessarily recognized or kind of glorified or celebrated for just how special just having the spark or the inspiration to do it is Mm. compared to the actual final result of what it could look like so so yeah, the the television show is just it's it's not it's not an honest representation. It's a it's glamorized. It's a big flourishment of mm. of a, of a much deeper personal journey. You know, what was what was that deeper initial craving for you? Like you said, started at a really early age. 
What was that? What, what, yeah. what was that for you? Um, I mean, you know, in part, just growing up, being different, feeling different, knowing on some level, even though it was probably, you know, unconscious for a long time that I wasn't, you know, didn't fit in. I grew up with three older brothers. Uh, hmm. So it was pretty evident pretty early on. So no that, sisters, like, just brothers. Yeah, just brothers, yeah. Okay. no sisters. Yeah. And uh, I was the youngest. And yeah. uh, it was pretty clear that I wasn't like them. I wasn't into the same things. Mm. Uh, but I didn't know why. I didn't understand why. I had no concept or, con, you know, framework for, for gender or gender expression. Or, or there was no options <laughs> either, really. Um so that was just sort of a feeling that always lingered, right? And then, and then as you grow up with that kind of confusion, um, <clears throat> and you know, developing over time through puberty and stuff, start to realize that uh, once again you don't you don't necessarily conform to mm-hmm. the binary sort of construct of of our world, uh, and you really identify with things that are quote unquote feminine and, um, you know, but you also still, you know, realize and, or identify still with your, your physical, you know, body, you know, being a male bodied individual, you know, I, I, I'd never experienced any dysmorphia in terms of that, you know, in that sense, like some people do like transgender folk do, um, so you've kind of, again, fall in some kind of area along this amazing spectrum of, of gender and humanity and, uh, and sorry, I'm, I'm kind of going all over. It's such a vast topic, but, uh, yeah, just through time, I got to be exposed to, uh, different opportunities, I guess. And like I said, I think that's part of the reason why I started started going to nightclubs and things at a pretty young age because it was, you know, sort of the first time I started to find a community and an environment where I could be a little more flexible and fluid in my exploration. A little, you know, I had a safe space all of a sudden where, uh, where I could wear stuff that I wasn't allowed to wear in the daytime mm-hmm. in public places, um, or around my family. So, um, I'm not sure if I'm, totally answering your question anymore <laughs> no no i think you gain, you gained to those roots i mean i was gonna yeah you started talking about your family um yeah and i just wondering sort of what your what was the support like sort of early on when did you sort of letting them in into okay there's this there's this side of you that you really want to express and 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 you wanted to get into drag like when did that start happening god way after i actually did it way okay. after i mean there was a time in my teens when i kind of thought like fuck it I was sort of like I didn't care what people thought so when I was in high school I was starting to experiment with you know wearing makeup to school or wearing my grandmother's old fur coat or uh you know jewelry I was like I said again back then at this in the 90s there was a lot more mixing of subcultures and so I was a little bit punk one day a little bit goth another day yeah. a little bit gender fluid um I was trying on different things, seeing how sure. they felt, how, how it fit. And uh, and at that time, I mean, I was doing it very publicly and, you know, my family was aware 
because they could see, but they weren't engaging me in any way that was like, oh, what does this mean to you? How do you feel? What, you know, is, you know, there was no conversation. It mm -hmm. was always just sort of lumped in, in the, into this category of, oh, you're a freak. You're a weirdo. You, you want attention. You know, it was like, uh, there was a lot that of that. was the reaction that you were getting? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, for okay. sure. And I went to, I don't know if you're familiar, but like Victoria Composite High School, and that's where I went. And it was considered yeah. the art school in Edmonton. And so a lot of people that went to Vic were just labeled freaks. Like that was just, mm. you know, and that was, again, that was just the catch term. Freaks, you know, like how, mm. how, uh, how novel. Um, but, you know, the beauty of that place was that, yeah, I was in a community in, in my teens of like a lot of kids who were experimenting and exploring and pushing mm -hmm. boundaries for themselves and their families. But we were not necessarily coming from, I mean, I wasn't coming from a family that was embracing that at all. And so, I mean, I eventually, my path took me out of the city. I moved away when I was, you know, 19. I uh, left... Well, Edmonton, I lived in the Rocky Mountains for a while, and then I ended up hitchhiking to Vancouver and living there for a number of years. And that's where I really started to like flourish and explore mm. in, a, in a much bigger context. And like I said, got into drag sort of more professionally. Um, but I, my family had no idea. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, What yeah. did they think you were doing? They thought I was living in a different city. <laughs> they Just thought had had a, some job or something like that? Well, or? and I did, because I, I worked other jobs. I mean, it wasn't okay. a... Drag, drag has never paid the bills. Uh, okay. uh, yeah, no, not, not at my level. No, no. I, I, I mean, when I lived in Vancouver, and as you can imagine, Vancouver is expensive. It still was back then yeah, even. Yeah. Um, and I lived in a penthouse in the West End. So, I mean, oh, I, I was rolling. That's nice. I was rolling in the dough for a little while, but I worked yeah. three jobs. Okay, okay. I worked three jobs to do it. Um, but no, they just thought it was working. I mean, I, I shared enough information but not too much I, I never lied about anything but again there was no there was no invitation for me to share m much more and so it wasn't until I was I think I was 23 I'd actually just moved to Montreal and uh I finally I was dating someone a guy yeah. and it was actually the first time because I'd, I'd never really had a, a serious relationship until then uh, and then I realized as I would have my phone conversations on a weekly basis with my parents, my mother, you know, primarily, I, I, I was realizing I was leaving out a big portion of my life because mm -hmm. I would, I would talk about, you know, what I was up to, but I would be leaving out this like, you know, 80% of my experience was like with this new person in my life and I wasn't talking about it at all. And then I thought, okay, now that feels wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. I started to mm -hmm. feel um, like I was lying or holding back. And so I came home for a visit, um, and finally came out to my parents and yeah, got a whole weird reaction. Uh, we've been, you know, it's been a huge, long, long journey of like learning about each other and, uh, opening up and, um, and yeah, the drag portion. I mean, that's just, that was really just about coming out as as queer. Sure. Yeah. Coming out as a drag performer. I'm trying to think if there was a specific moment. I I can't I can't put my finger on a specific moment in terms of coming out as drag. I I'm sure I talked about it plenty before sure. anything. It was really only 
uh, I'm trying to think, maybe three years ago that, uh, well, that's not entirely true. A number of years before one of my siblings had come to a show, one of my brothers, uh, but about three years ago, I had my entire family come to a drag show of mine. And, uh, but that, yeah, that was the first time. And that was huge. It was, that was a that major, was... a major moment. For sure. Yeah. And part of the, the only reason that was even kind of possible was because, uh, Again, I'm trying to remember exactly. It was three or four years ago, but a good friend of mine, Gogo Fetch, who's a local performer, she started a drag brunch event at the Yellowhead Brewery downtown. And uh, so brunch, of course, was happening in the morning and the daytime. And so this was like the first time for so many of us that our family members, children included, were allowed to come to our shows. Because normally mm. we were like, you know, we were uh, relegated to nighttime events that mm. usually were happening after midnight like mm. that's just part of the culture and so you know drag brunches was a newer thing and so having our families come I mean it was like it was really pivotal and and hugely like impactful in terms of this new level of connection that we were able to like make with our families uh, myself personally you know to have my entire family my niece my nephews um, my ex-partner's 90-year-old grandmother came to one of our shows. Wow. Uh, you know, I got to serenade her. I mean, it was like, yeah. So it's evolved a lot, but it's taken, you know, it's taken the, the 20 years, as I mentioned, that I've been doing this um, to get to this place. So I can't imagine the reaction or feeling that you would have had and just like what the reaction on their faces were like, were, was it generally a sense of immense pride, happiness, confusion? Well, like, what was that like? It must have been oh, a mix of things or what? Oh, totally. Well, you yeah. asked about like anxiousness or nerves. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, <laughs> yeah, there, was a, there was a little, little heavy drinking going on that day. Um, yeah, it was definitely all of that. It was, and on both parts, right? It's like, they were nervous. I was nervous. It was like, how are, how is this going to come together? Um, how are we going to respond? But again, you know, my family has not always been informed or in the know in terms of my community, my culture. And uh, so there's been a long learning curve of us sharing bit by bit and but I'm going to give them a huge you know a huge shout out in terms of their willingness to learn uh mm. over time right and um so it was yeah it was nerve-wracking but it was also like I said it was like one of the most pivotal moments of really like when you feel that in your body and your nervous system, that like moment of being able to just be yourself to be truly at ease. Mm. That's like, it's a kind of a feeling that's really hard to describe unless you've sort of felt it, which I know a lot of people have in different respects, but you know, when you spend a lot of your life hiding and sometimes, you know, being literally afraid for your physical safety, uh, not to mention emotional and, and mm. whatnot, then to be able to step into a relationship where where that openness and that love is unconditional then i mean that's uh i mean 
honestly, I'm going to cry just thinking about it because there's nothing better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, and I think, you know, we all want to feel validated in some respect, but to, like, you just added that other layer, that sort of unconditional love and support that you typically, not all the time, but typically can get from those really close family members. It's just, um, you know, I've experienced uh, one or two things like that for myself. And it's just, you can't, it's indescribable. The, Absolutely. the, 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 the joy that you, that it brings you. So that's, yeah. I'm really happy for you that like that, mm-hmm. that sort of happened. Totally. Um, who was Me there too. somebody who kind of gave you was a little bit more, I don't know if difficult is the right word or had a little bit more of a challenge kind of overcoming something or maybe still hasn't overcome something or. <laughs> oh, Poor guy. Uh, (laughs) I mean, my dad, I guess. And yeah, yeah. yeah, not to like single him out in a bad way, but I mean, you know, uh, that generation, my dad's 75 now. Uh, He is a, he's an ex-Marine. He was in the Vietnam War. He comes from a military family from the United States. Uh, You know, major adjustments (laughs) in terms of like, uh, the learning curve that man has been on is, I would have to say, pretty phenomenal. Um, so, again, don't you just feel proud of him for doing that, though? Even absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. Yeah. You know, I mean, there are definitely moments where it's like, because again, you don't know any different, right? So, you in in your experience, you always, you know, because I do believe as human beings, we fundamentally deserve to be loved unconditionally. Mm. from the get-go <laughs> mm. so to mm. have to work for it and towards it there are moments where you feel very conflicted about um what's being given and what you feel you need uh and so it's been a major process there's been times where it's really felt lacking and then there are these aha moments where you remember how much change the other person has been going through and how hard they actually are working to um to learn and to to find that understanding mm-hmm. and acceptance for you that you just, I mean, that melt, you know, melts your heart and you really can understand like just how deep that love goes that, that they would continue to open up and, and again, love you and be there in your life and support mm-hmm. you. Um, it, despite all the stuff that they still don't get at all. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Did he ever talk to you in, you know, maybe before the age of 15 or, or throughout your time when he didn't really know about, you know, this, this 80% of your life that you sort of weren't uh, expressing to them? Did he ever talk to you about what it meant to be a man from his eyes or, or masculinity in general? Oh, yeah, for for sure. You know what, I will give him, uh, yeah, props as well for that, because he did try a couple of times um, around sort of... Uh, sexual orientation he tried to kind of open some conversations but you know and and again i'll give him props but you know i i was in a very tumultuous place i i wasn't clear on a lot of things so it's you know and, and he definitely didn't know exactly how to approach me in a super constructive way so even though he tried it was we we were at a bit of an impasse it was hard to you know, it was hard to uh, have a real exchange or a real, you know, we didn't know how to like have that conversation. So, um, yeah, there were there were definitely many, many moments 
I mean, the one, the one person, and I've talked about uh, this to my brother recently and his wife, actually, because they were both there. They weren't married at the time. Uh, we were all still teenagers. But my one brother, Michael, and his wife, Jennifer, they were the first ones when I was about I think I was about 17 at the time and uh, I guess they would have been in the early 20s, but they actually kind of asked me point blank. They were the first and only ones in my family to like point blank ask me, are you gay? And uh, and even though it was a really difficult moment in conversation and I also at the time I wasn't super clear on like what I was. Um, uh, and I just said, you know what? I don't look at the world in terms of males and females. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I kind of like everybody was sort of my response. And they, you know, reminded me that they loved me no matter what. And as, you know, complicated as that was to this day, I thank them so much for like opening mm-hmm. that door and for starting the conversation because. And now I feel that emotion coming up. But like when you're when you're a kid and you're like elders are you you expect them to pave the way for you, right? So mm. <clears throat> it's really important for your elders, whether they're siblings or parents or grandparents or just elders within your community, for them to invite you into a safe space in that in that role in that capacity in that way that they can give you permissions and love and encouragement like you know as a youth that that's huge i think that's massive it's so important to to do that for our children and for for the younger generations to make sure mm-hmm. that they know that their um that their individual unique expression of life is like welcome we want to we want to see it like tell us more <laughs> Uh, so, so that was really big. That really impacted me in a way that like kind of no one else did as I was developing until I met people outside of the family that were into it. (laughs) Yeah. I I was just going to, um, say while you get, uh, while you drink your water there is that, um, you know, I think sometimes some parents have, I think sometimes where it maybe goes wrong is that, uh, parents have sort of dreams for their kids and expectations for their kids and yeah. and what that reality might look like and 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 when you know that's what this with anything when your reality doesn't meet your expectations it creates a whole bunch of sort of negative things that happen afterwards right and right. and you know i suspect that your your parents and may have had some thoughts about what you ideally would have maybe looked like and yeah and even you know even with my uh, um so my wife is white and and that was a huge thing for 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 my mom and dad and to have them accept michelle was was huge and right. for them they had like a a view of like their son would be marrying somebody who was east indian and right. that took a lot to get over and and it wasn't until i really started to appreciate that okay i understood that it was going to be um you know my parents came from india and that's all they knew and 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 I understood that piece, but I didn't really understand that. Okay. They had these dreams and visions of what their son and who they were going to marry. Right. right? And when I internalized that, that sort of developed a whole lot more empathy, but, but I agree with you. I think, I think that, um, you know, at least with my daughter right now, like we try to, whenever there's a point of a a part of us that's ever like, Oh, 
I hope or wish we're always like, no, 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 let's take that back. Right. Like this mm-hmm. is, this is her and let's give her this space and the, and the pathway to, and the support for her to just express herself in, in her full being. So yeah, absolutely. Um, there's definitely a shift in parenting that I think we're seeing. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, in, in the world in general, right. Like, but absolutely. I think that that's th- that particular relationship that you're describing between parent and child uh, is uh it's fundamental, right? It's sort of the foundation of how, uh, how a human being, it changes how a human being can develop in the world when they know they have that secure attachment, when they have that unconditional love in Mm -hmm. their, you know, in their most base kind of reality, which is their family dynamic, their family unit, then they can, they can approach the world with so much more confidence and self-love and self-esteem that, uh, I mean, I think it just, yeah, again, just really, really bolsters them up in an incredible way. So yeah, I can, I, I appreciate that, that sharing and that, uh, and the, the commonality in your, in what you were just describing. Um, do you, do you feel like you're at a place of security now? With my family? Uh, just with yourself and, and with your family. Yeah. Uh, no, still working on it <laughs> okay. Okay. in certain respects, right? There's levels, there's layers. Uh, so yeah, in certain respects. And I, I will say with my family, I do feel that, yeah. um, that security, um, you know, on that though, uh, it's actually, there's been some major shifts in, a, in that direction just recently with my family. Mm. So it's something that again, has still been developing and, and, uh, you know, in deeper, deeper kind of layers of, of how I feel in my body. Um, and then there are other areas that I'm still working on. That's kind of a, I mean, my perspective is that that's one of the journeys of life that should never end is a continual uh, sort of exploration towards full, you know, embodiment and, um, loving of oneself and i don't Mm. think that you know i don't think there's any rush to to be fully there uh until we're ready to leave this experience (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah when we come back to the the word of masculinity is there anything that sort of strikes you with that word is there um does it bring any sort of like negativity around that word or what are your views on on any discussions that people are having around what it means to be masculine? Well, um, I think that a lot of the discussions, well, a lot, I would say, I guess they're, you know, obviously some of the more mainstream discussions that are going on are, 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 you know, using the terms like toxic masculinity, Mm. um, you know, looking at, uh, the fragility of masculinity. Um, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of, you know, there is, yeah, some, you know, fairly negative connotations there. And those are, again, are the maybe more mainstream conversations that are happening. I'd love to know what men are talking about to each other, uh, in terms of their masculinity and sort of that side of the coin. But yeah, I, I do, uh, I do see, the prevalence of toxicity and fragility within the male sort of construct. 
Um, and it does concern me, you know, it does uh, have, you know, some some serious issues and some serious limitations. And I, you know, I, uh, I see it in a lot of men that I know, I mean, you know, again, let's face. I, like I said, I grew up with three older brothers and a father. We were sort of a male-dominated household. My mother was the only female, and I mean, I often joke that you know I was her only daughter. Uh, but I had a lot of exposure to masculinity, and uh, it it is, you know, it is a little bit tragic that there were these again, sort of limited beliefs around how one could express themselves, how one could and or should be or not be vulnerable, have mm. feelings, um, be, you know, impacted by things, how they were, you know, how we're forced to sort of uh, represent ourselves and or uh, behave in this world. Um, uh, yeah, there's... Uh, yeah, a lot of lot I, of room I, for I, improvement. I, I think there's. I think there. What I'm noticing, and I obviously don't can't speak for um, everybody out there for by any means, but it's just that I think there's an openness among men to you know be more vulnerable and to talk about their their life experiences in a way that's that's not just about sort of the physical event that happened, but sort of the emotions attached to something or the feelings or, or whatnot. Mm. Um, so. and, and, and I, and I, and I, and I think, I think that, I think that's occurring. I mean, uh, that was sort of really a big driver for Kyle and I to start this, this podcast was just, you know, the, when we were having conversations over dinner, they often led to places that were very insightful because we were just really expressing ourselves and, mm -hmm. and we're like, okay, we think more men need to, to speak like this. But when I was sort of doing the research and in, in starting this podcast, I was noticing that there there were a lot of podcasts and, and, and men getting together to want to talk about these things, if that's any indication about maybe if things are, are, are shifting. One of the areas where, where I don't know if it's, you know, something that's innately a, a male thing or, but I think there's a lot of men who feel like they want to, they have the sense of wanting to provide, but that doesn't necessarily mean that obviously women don't want to at all. Like there's not nothing like that, of course, mm -hmm. but I always find there's something, um, you know, at least with the interviews I've seen with a lot of these different, uh, male groups, when they talk about these sort of things that all of them sort of have this kind of consensus and this feeling of like, there's something like I need to provide, like I need to, I need to rise above and provide for whoever my family or for myself with a sense of personal responsibility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of cool. I mean, I think that there's something to really be looked at there and to really unpack um, because that might be a really innate impulse in the, in the sort of archetype that is masculinity. And there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that at all. Um, you know, it's more, I think some of the bigger social and societal pressures or, or belief systems around what providing looks like. What does that mean, right? right? And uh, and what it takes to provide, right? And so I think maybe historically there's been a lot of cause for um, the suppression of emotion, the suppression of like mm -hmm. of like vulnerable communication that needed to be 
that needed to be a part of like a man's sacrifice, you know, mm. to because, you know, whatever the, the conditions in which they were able to provide for their families were, you know, less than ideal. Let's face it. I mean, in a lot of maybe potentially work working conditions and or uh, like, let's talk, I mean, like a little bit about like uh, military or sort of wartime culture. Um, mm. There was a lot of like programs and messages that, that I think forced men, the male identity to, to need to dampen their sensitive side so mm -hmm. that they could carry forward. Right. And do what you're saying, provide, but you know, that was then and, and this is a very different time and it's not the truth. It may have been true for a time for some people in their experience, but for it to have pervaded the, you know, the sort of collective mindset of male culture uh, is, you know, is unfortunate um, that that's, yeah, the overarching kind of message that we're not you know, but I agree with you is what in what you're saying. Like so many things, um, these conversations are becoming more and more abundant, more and more common, and I'm so grateful that that's the case because uh, this is going to also again coming back to like you know the children, next generation. This is going to mm -hmm. open the door and create safe spaces for the younger generations to uh, look at their experience of their gender. Um, i.e. masculinity of their masculinity in a in a in a healthier way in a more open flexible personal way that you know works for them there is there's something i heard recently just to add to this uh i was listening to uh bruce springsteen and bruce springsteen and uh barack obama they have their own podcast it's called renegades and so they, oh, wow. they did a little bit of a, yeah, they did a little bit of a talk on, on masculinity and fatherhood. And I never heard this perspective, but he, Bruce Springsteen, uh, spoke about masculinity completely different to what I just said about like men sort of feeling like maybe they need to provide for uh -huh. him. It was, it was very much the opposite is like the needing to provide and be there from, for his family was almost like neutering him from, 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 from being a man and, and expressing his masculinity. So he needed to get away, which was largely his experience. Like it wasn't about settling down and, and being a family man and being the dad and, mm -hmm. and, and being there for his, his, his wife and, and so on. Mm -hmm. It was him needing to get away and do his own thing and living by himself that really um, would, would prevent him from, from uh from getting from not for being from being less of a man if that makes right. sense yeah and i was like wow that's i'd never i'd never heard of that because i i just always i guess from i just always mainly saw this sense of like men really wanting to to the pressures of, of needing to provide for their family and being there for them like that was like the ideal like that's what you need to do as a man right right like that's sort of how i was raised especially right and those are the conversations i've had with other other men about this stuff so to, to, mm -hmm. to him describe it as like no that's actually was a neutering effect mm -hmm. on his masculinity was very striking right well i mean i and i can totally appreciate that because i mean it's almost like i mean he was you know, in his way, and again, very personal journey for everyone, but he was maybe breaking that mold for himself. And he was, you know, saying, 
I mean, this is just my interpretation, but like mm-hmm. this isn't, I'm not going to be defined in my masculinity in terms of being a provider or a family man. I'm going to actually break out of that and search for my identity as a male bodied person beyond that role. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah, makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing of it is like with so much of our reality as human beings is that there, you know, these, these constructs and these like really defined roles and definitions of what it means to be anything is just like, it's really never been fair. It's never been representative. It's never been inclusive or open enough to really include the dynamism and the beauty of, you know, individuality and the uniqueness that is kind of, you know, you know, uh, the human experience, right? So uh, all of those constructs are, um, they're okay starting points, but like, we can't, let ourselves get pigeonholed by them. We have to, we have to, you know, look within and, and question everything. I agree. I I wonder, I wonder if some of that though is just like our brain has these, this natural ability to just make shortcuts because it's just cheap and easy sometimes. Sure. Just, and safe, you know, yeah. And safe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Right. It's, you're right. It's, it's almost, it's almost primitive. And so maybe that's why uh, people need to do people do that, but yeah, you know, as with anything, we need to challenge ourselves to kind of go outside those biases and and see the actual truth and observe that truth rather than yeah, you know, just limit ourselves to those shortcuts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially if you want to see change, if you want to experience change. I mean, if you and I imagine most humans have have experienced some kind of shortcoming in their life or like, you know, some area of their life where they thought like, well, that that's not right. That doesn't feel good. That, like mm-hmm. we could do better than this. I mean, if, if you have any drive to challenge those kinds of uh, boundaries in the world, then you got to start. Yeah. You got to start opening your mind and, and also like, yeah, being a little bit creative uh, about how, you can challenge the status quo. And I mean, even what you and Kyle are doing with this podcast and the conversations you're having behind the scenes, I mean, you're, you're already, you're already doing the work right for yourself. And Mm -hmm. now you're taking it with this podcast to another level where you're actually sharing this in a larger context with more people. And like these kinds of conversations are just, they're so necessary for all of us to, um, you know, as, as part of our, internal sort of you know uh questioning and as well i mean we have to do this in relationship with other people as well um because we are sort of uh you know we are we are a a community uh oriented beings right like we need yeah we need we need to bounce ideas off of each other and um be shown different examples of of how you know, how reality can look and how things can, uh, how things could change and, and be better for the future. Right. What continues to just like trouble you, um, as you continue to, well, you're not sure about that's, that's a really big question. So I'm going to narrow it down a little bit because <laughs> I was like, you're going to go to a bunch of places here, but, uh, when, I guess when it comes to specifically around the drag community uh, what continues to sort of trouble you? What continues to sort of leave you more hopeful? Um, 
trouble. Um, I mean, what immediately leaps to mind is, it, for me personally, somewhat is in relation to the world, the pandemic world that we're in. So not having a live audience, I mean, that's troubling to me. <laughs> not being able to actually engage with people in person, that is troubling to me in a performative capacity. Mm. Um, you know, and yeah, and just kind of a throwback to what I was saying earlier about sort of some of the, 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 the issues around status and competition um, and yeah the competitive nature yeah, yeah. um the expectations the high 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 expectations placed on you know what drag is supposed to look like um that troubles me because that's all bs we need to mm. you know the the performance of drag and of gender is one that needs to always be left completely to interpretation by the artist and there is absolutely no limitation i mean that's really that's like the foundation of of you know what drag sort of represents is like a fuck you to the binary world that is a fallacy that is like an illusion that we have constructed and impose upon ourselves and each other mm. uh and so drag challenges that and so there has to always be room for uh, uh you know continued challenging of all of those definitions boundaries labels etc um and what excites me is that there's lots of awesome people doing that you know there's lots of amazing young performers and old performers who continue to be themselves and to create really beautiful art and it's amazing to see how things have evolved as well on a creative level in terms of makeup and costuming and mm -hmm. uh and again the social commentary the political commentary that uh people are continuing to push forward with their art uh that is brilliant and exciting uh the places i don't know why but all of a sudden like nas uh, is coming to mind. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this uh, queer no. hip hop artist. He just had a video come out that was like super controversial and like really, okay. uh, what is it? Nas triple X maybe. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyhow, look into it. Cause uh, it, it's beautiful. It's, it's well done. It's provocative. Uh, it's contra it's controversial as I said. And, uh, but to have representation of a, of a, queer person of color in the hip hop world, which is largely Huge. dominated by Huge. cis, um, hetero, uh, men that is massive. Exactly. So to see that kind of stuff, that super excites me to see, you know, more and more representation across the board is, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I can't, I can't like that makes me emotional. That's like, you can't get better than, the, you know, then celebrating and, and uplifting the people that are really fighting to like make this world a safe place mm -hmm. for for everyone to just be authentic in and uh, yeah, to, to be met with that unconditional love that we all deserve from the get go. But again, we've got to we've got to work hard to continue to create those safe spaces for each other and and welcome in all of that uniquity and beauty that uh that we are and that is like you know really the spice of life right i love that 
Um, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to belabor our conversation because that's, that was, this was such a beautiful way to sort of end the conversation mm-hmm. here. Um, I do have to do well. I do want to do actually to get, you to know, you a little bit better. Um, I always ask these sort of final two questions, okay. um, dead or alive, who are the, who are five people that you would want to have a meal with? I mean, they can be collectively or individually. Okay. Who would those five people be? Oh, uh, that's fun. Um, my first one would be my favorite singer-songwriter of all time. If I could listen to one and only one musician for the rest of my life, it would be Nina Simone. Uh, so absolutely Nina uh, would be one. <laughs> you know, again, there was no accident when my friend channeled my drag name. So I'm going to say Jesus <laughs> is another one. I would okay. love to pick that human's brain. Um Let's see. <sighs> Who else? Uh, you know what? Another controversial character, but honestly, was my my childhood hero because of the, when my dad told me stories about him growing up, even though I, I recently found out that was not my dad's intention was to like paint him in a in a great <laughs> light. But okay. but he became my my childhood hero. It was uh, Rasputin. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to meet him and and <laughs> get his uh, his version of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a good one. Who else? Um, oh my goodness. Uh, Martha Johnson uh, was a, a trans activist. Um, there at like the Stonewall riots in the 60s uh, that, you know, kicked off the revolution. I would love to meet and converse mm. with Martha P. Johnson. That would be amazing. Uh, she American? She was American. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. African-American trans woman. Um, mm. And... Yeah, and then lastly, I'm going to say, and it's just the very vague, it'll sound vague, but to me is it means something, and it's more specific, I, I, I couldn't go into too much detail, but it would be one of my ancestors from several generations mm-hmm. ago, mm-hmm. Um, and, and one in particular that I would love to, okay. yeah, talk about some of my lineage. Yeah. 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 Uh, besides the circle of life, what do you know for sure? Um, hmm. What comes to mind is that what I know for sure is that love is really the highest vibration and Mm. it's what we are all yearning to return to. Like, totally. Yeah. That's, I think we're all yearning for a ton of that right now. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. Josh, this was, uh, this was actually an, like, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh-huh. I'm really, I'm really happy to have had you as a guest. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Thank you for um, having there's me. There's so much, absolutely. There's, there's so much I learned, uh, not only about your art form, but about you as a human being and you're, you're just, uh, you know, just a beautiful, beautiful person. And so, so thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Um, if there's, if people want to reach out to Josh, I'll put some information in our show notes, uh, and, uh, link to link to their website and, and his Instagram and all that great stuff. And, 
and uh, you can check out his videos on YouTube. I was actually doing a lot of watching oh, this week, really? Josh. Oh, but, no. Yeah, I was, I, was watching, <laughs> I was watching some of your performances. I had to do my research, right? It was, oh. it was. Uh, I don't. I mean, it was, it was fun to watch. So, uh, okay. I, I you. By the way, I got to say, my YouTube algorithm is like totally getting messed up these days because like we've had so many random conversations, Kyle and I. And so as we're doing research, you know, like my YouTube algorithm is probably like, what do you want? Because like now you're into like drag, like what's going on? <laughs> totally. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. But thank you so much, Josh. Uh, I, I look forward to talking to you in the future and uh, all the best. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Rupesh. That was amazing. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, being open and inviting me in. For sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Take care. Okay. You too. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye.